Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 74. And this is our final episode focusing on the topic of anti-Asian racism. This episode, we're looking at some of the listeners' responses and having a dialogue about some of the different perspectives that were presented. Let's do this! Hey everybody, thank you guys so much for joining us again on this conversation. It's been a big conversation, there has been a lot of response, and we've received a lot of emails and messages, and we just wanted to spend some time, and spend a whole episode actually, to be able to talk about some of the responses we've been getting, and this will be more of a question and response. It's not to say that we have all the answers, we want to just be able to continue this conversation and dialogue, and honor you guys for being so willing to send in your perspectives and feeling that that this is a safe place to be able to talk about this kind of stuff. We just recognize that, yeah, we can't do justice to every different perspective and we can't be responding to every single comment. And so if your comment doesn't get brought up, we do apologize. We wish we could spend more time talking about all this, but we only have so much time on our podcast to be able to do that. And so hopefully some of these big topics will cover some of the major areas that you guys have been bringing out. As always, Bernard, Xenia, and Shu are here. How you guys doing? Hello, hello. Hi. <laughs> yo, yo. <laughs> We're terrible at this. No, it's good. It's all good. Keeps things fresh. Oh, man. So I'm excited to kind of jump into this conversation, and we are going to kind of read little snippets from different feedback that we've been getting, and we really do appreciate everyone who did send in thoughts about our last three episodes. There's definitely been a lot of appreciation that you guys have shown us, and also a lot of different points of view. So we really want to kind of just jump into it. The first one in particular was talking about uh, an awareness of white adjacent privileges, and how this was necessary before perhaps instructing our congregations to be able to connect with different people from different backgrounds and to be able to recognize that some of it has caused us to be so deeply entrenched within specific paradigms and specific frameworks and perspectives that if we don't address it, that perhaps we're missing a, a main component of how do we continue to dialogue, wrestle, and continue to like be able to work through you know racism and anti-Asian sentiments. And so we want to first start off to talk about this because perhaps this has been kind of one of those issues that are under the surface that has affected this topic in so many different ways. And perhaps it has affected people so much to the fact that like, you know, if we don't acknowledge it, there can be kind of this barrier or kind of this, like there's this sense of, of how we're not s sensitive to, to the, the specific issues at, at play. And so we want to first start talking about, you know, the idea about what is white adjacent privilege? I think this might be a term that not everyone is familiar with. And so this is throwing this out there. How, when you guys hear this term, white adjacent privilege, what do you guys think about? What does that particularly mean? Well, I don't know, just on the sociological kind of term or like what, what I, I've been seeing in the news and what, what people say is this white 
adjacent privilege is it's essentially talking about these white normativity talking about that being as the the highest ideal of power and then any kind of other ethnicity that's adjacent to white to caucasian and the privilege that come with it is acknowledging that that we have we get some of that privilege and i think Chinese people get that a lot as the kind of model minority at times that we I've, I've seen a lot in Instagram during I can't I need to delete my social media but just seeing so much <laughs> on social on social media about that like people posting like oh you Asians need to be recognizing your privileges that's essentially white adjacent that kind of stuff so so I kind of just want to follow up quickly on what Shu said too because you use the word normative and I wonder if Perhaps sometimes people just don't even recognize it. It's almost accepted. Maybe even if someone has grown up, particularly in Canada, they've just understood this as the natural or normal way. Perhaps it hasn't always been the case, or perhaps there are specific factors in a specific history that have led up to what we experience today. And I'm just wondering, how do we even start the conversation of recognizing it? How do we even start thinking about, oh, you know what, like, you know, this just shouldn't be the accepted norm. But rather, you know, we have to consider everything that has come before that has led to this moment and how it particularly affects racism and how it particularly affects how we see ourselves, especially in regards to privileges. Because if someone has not examined some of the things that have gone on before, they might never have assumed that it's anything different. Maybe when they go around the world or perhaps when they encounter different cultures and they, it, it really is this culture shock, or, you know, or it is even a church shock. Like if you go to a different church from around the world or maybe from a different culture, you'll see and you'll feel the difference. But rather, you know, because if we've, we've grown up perhaps in Canada or perhaps with that white adjacent privilege and we've never known anything else, we could have just accepted it as as the norm. And so it's it's really interesting to for you to kind of bring that out, Shu, because like I'm just wondering even what the first step is even to be aware of it. I, I think what's hard with this conversation and now we're we're at times forced to define these terms, but it's hard when not everyone even is on the same page with these terms. And we have to like just be okay just starting conversation. Yeah. Like without inflaming others because some of these words like even this word is triggering to some people right off the bat and just like you shut down conversation i don't even want to use that term that wouldn't be the first word first term i would use but because we want sound bites we want social media like memes just you know really quick to be able to explain to some people in a few sentences we'll use these kind of terms but then not have the relational way which i think as followers of christ we need to have to just sit and be present with people to to have these conversations that are, you know, at times quite inflammatory, but they're needed. They're needed to go about, but doesn't have to be as, hey, we have to get this talked about and urgently, and then I'll convince you, you convince me, and that's it. I think certainly when we think about white adjacent privilege, there's a sense of that we benefit from from a system that is stacked against people of color or or people who are of darker skin or are of certain ethnicities. But then I also wonder, just in reading this entire question, I'm wondering like how much of this question is actually challenging the fact that a lot of us have adopted American, white American theologies wholesale. Like that could 
equally be something that this person is asking about. And I think certainly us as well, I mean, just in my growing up, I'm looking back at, I've been looking back at my history and looking back at, you know, the ways in which so much of my life growing up had been, has been sort of determined by white American theologies, particularly Southern Baptist and certain strains of neo-reformed thought, <laughs> right? And it's not to say that that doesn't, that those things might not be faithful in a particular context, but there's this real thought about, well, what does it mean for us as, you know, for us in particular, Chinese folk, and by us, I mean like me and these three dudes, <laughs> that we've been discipled by essentially what is a white American system that is very particular to a geographic space and place. And I, so there's some of that. And then there's also some of the like, okay, well, is there also an accusation of us propping up systems that shouldn't be propped up? Does that extend into the church? But but it's like we don't even have the space to to wrestle with those things, right? Most of the times in in churches or, or traditional churches, which I, some of us are not involved <laughs> in, a, in a traditional kind of uh, context that way, but you, you're just sort of just going. We just do our tradition, and that's it, right? Kind of thing. We don't need to think about that. It's just, but then when people have questions, then you have to really get into it. And I think what's what's happened during this time uh during this pandemic all all these things with racism with uh discrimination has just unraveled things unraveled like why aren't we talking about you know colonization why aren't we talking about power differential why don't we talk about these things and now the church has to like you're saying Zinia, has to start engaging some of this or it's just like no nah, we're not going to talk about this we'll just keep doing what we do but it's kind of interesting, like how, you know, she was saying, like, most churches, you know, don't want to talk about this stuff or have not, or there's no space for it. And yet, so much of, you know, the biblical narrative and the prophetic languages is actually speaking out against injustices. And these are like systemic injustices that were happening in, in, in Jesus's time, right? And, and I wonder if like, part of it is, we just... Like you said, we need a bigger story. Um, we need to be aware of the narratives around us. And maybe we just need to be more uncomfortable, right? Because like, you know, when John was saying like, because people are not exposed, you can be exposed anywhere. You can you can actually just walk to a different neighborhood. And it's, it's funny because like, I remember when I was in youth ministry and we were taking youth downtown uh, and taking the transit. And then I think a lot of people were kind of concerned for their kids. It's like, is it going to be safe? It's like millions of people take the transit every day. They mm -hmm. seem to be okay. So I'm pretty sure it'll be fine. But that that's kind of part of the exposure to be disrupted, right? To, to kind of experience the different, to enter into a different story, to actually enter into a different neighborhood. But, but I think like John was saying, like, it's until you can get out of your bubble that you can really like start experiencing, like if you go somewhere else in the world, can you see something different or what God is doing or what another culture, another uh, ethnicity is like? But sometimes I think within the church, you just sort of stay within there. Like, and you don't realize you're not aware ultimately of maybe some privileges that, that you might have or, or, or things that you take for granted. Or it's just like, oh, I just expect to have this. 
but where you're at, if you don't, or if you're not able to reflect or spend time in a community to reflect uh, on deeper, these things more deeply. Yeah. And, and that just takes time, right? Like, I think I, I was telling someone tonight that I didn't know what life looks like outside of the Chinese bubble. And I didn't really look, know what it looked like until I was doing life with people who were not of my culture or my ethnicity. And boy, sometimes, you know, it really sucked. And sometimes it was really life-giving. But, you know, through my time with living with people who were of different cultures, I discovered what it means to be Chinese, to know the, the flaws and, and the gifts of my culture, right? And I, I think what we've done, and this isn't true across the board, but sometimes we mistake knowledge for wisdom, right? And wisdom is time earned. It's slow going. It's, it's about the journey, not the destination, to use a trite phrase, but... <laughs> And when we're just accumulating knowledge, it's about efficiency. And what we're saying here is, you know, it's not about efficiency. It's, it's about relationship. It's about uh, spending time with other people. And it's not, it's not about being a tourist in someone else's culture. It's, it's about hospitality, of receiving hospitality and of extending hospitality. And all of those things take patience. Um, I posted a meme on my, on my wall this last week about, um, it, was, it, was the, it was the passage, I think, in Mark. but really it reminds me of the Luke 10 passage, right? We, as Christians, we're asked to go out into the world without anything except for the clothes on our back and the sandals on our feet or shoes, whatever, you know, but we don't do that as Christians. A lot of our ministry is about inviting in, but how many of us actually go out and receive hospitality from, from others because the spirit is at work in communities outside of ours. And when we see what the spirit is doing outside of the communities that we're in, uh, we might actually get a better glimpse of what God is doing in ours. There's a lot of truth there, for sure. A lot to consider. And I remember this past week seeing you post that meme. Like there was part of it that, yes, I, I can kind of understand what it was poking at and, you know, I can laugh at it. But <laughs> in, in fact, it, it kind of, pointed me in a different direction too because of course there is the sense of, of of hospitality but you know how we kind of generally have leaned more toward inviting people in however one thing that actually it sparked in my thought was like the whole idea of the pioneers and the colonists and how that is like completely the opposite of what you kind of had posted about and it's not only that like they didn't take anything with them like they did for sure take supplies but when they entered into a new country and of course this kind of is the whole like doctrine of discovery thing is just that it's like they go into a new country and then they took what you know what the others had and i was just like oh my like it made me think of that and of course it wasn't in the particular meme that you had put but i was like wow you know if that has been kind of part of the history no wonder why some of these kind of behaviors or perhaps some of the interactions and relationships have been like so broken or distanced in, in the past because some of that stuff did happen. And when talking about even ideas of privilege and such like that, which, you know, we can talk about like, oh yeah, like maybe we weren't the ones that uh, like that had taken, you know, something from someone in terms of like taking their land or, you know, but if we benefit from it and we don't, give it back and we don't acknowledge it then like are we just kind of inheriting that privilege and are we perpetuating those sentiments and so 
yeah, I think I think in, in days like this, it's it's really leading us to kind of you know reexamine a lot of things. And I think what you know, Xenia, you're talking about, and you know, Bernard and Shu, both of you guys were talking about too. I think there needs to be a like a humility of the heart and a posture to want to uh, you know to seek what the Lord wants for us and and how He's speaking into these situations and um, you, you know not to go all woke, but it's like to be able to think about these things from different perspectives. Even Bernard, even recently, even that term, man, that I term know. is game over now. Like you can't use that term. Like it, it's just. And then I was just, I was, I think Esau Macaulay was was posted about that. Like a like it was that he was saying woke was supposed to be a good thing within the black community, and now it's been taken over. Now it's by a certain another group going like, no, this is like a messed up thing. Yeah, negative connotation. A negative connotation, which yeah. the words are so fickle now. <laughs> Well, and yeah. I, I think it's just, a, you know, as you're saying, John, like I'm, I'm thinking about, so my, my background isn't all Chinese church, right? Like I've worked in organizations that were not people of color dominant. And I'm just thinking back even of the last sort of job that I had and thinking like my, my voice carries some weight here, you know, and that's what privilege really means. Like what gifts have, not a gift, but like what in this system, like what privileges have I been afforded? that I can start to make space for other people. Uh, not so that I give them a voice, but that their voices can be heard. Um, cause it's not about that. Right. But you know, it, it's funny. Cause I think that story in Luke 10 is about giving away your privilege, like going out without privilege. And I think about sort of the narrative that we've been given with the doctor of discovery, they were bankrolled by all sorts of empires you know, so much of that was so broken and so ugly and just the distortion of the gospel message. And so I think, you know, in that story, it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I've been hearing this lately. It's that people think whenever you have power, then you're corrupted. But I, I'd rather think of it as if you've got power, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to steward it well? Are you going to give it away? Are you going to empower other people? Are you going to lift them up? Are you going to make space for other people? Are you going to shut up so that some other people can talk, right? But then how do you get into a place, like, it'd be good if you were aware of, like, well, one, of course, like you're saying, the power that you hold. But I think what what gets stuck in the repetition is this, like, the, the quote-unquote privilege is, I, I think that that's the thing. If you're getting stuck in that and no one's able to have conversations to to think beyond just, oh, I'm just going to live off that privilege and then I'm going to live this North American dream and it's going to be about myself and about my church being great in a suburban neighborhood or, or whatever, like, w- what does that have to do with, you know, the racist issues at hand that I'm already away from that I'm, I'm like uh, arm's length away from, do I get involved with it? You know, directly, do I, does it start small? Do I become friends with someone who's, who's not of, you know, this, the same economic class or, or, you know, w- but it's just like, I think I, I keep hearing that on my end. I hear a lot of people just say, well, you can't just tell everyone what to do on a blank slate. And it sounds like sometimes in you know certain groups, we sh- everyone is just complicit in the same way and you just got to go and you know change, change the world or, or fix everything as, I don't know, an activist or as something like that. And that, that's what I've been hearing from the, from the other side. I figure if you got a job, you're probably in interaction with people who are not like you. 
if you're in a regular nine to five, chances are your work friends are probably nothing like your church friends. And so I'm thinking, well, have you defined your in bubble as your church people? Because that's not where you live. You don't spend the majority of your days within the four walls of the church building. Heck, these days, you're not even in the church building, right? (laughs) So that would be my first response. And then I, I think, you know, like, there's a reason why the Beatitudes carry so much resonance and are so heavily weighted in our Gospels. Like, if we don't know what it means to be poor in spirit because we're not hanging out with the poor... Like, do we actually understand the kingdom of God? And it's not to say that everyone's an activist. Certainly not everybody is bent in that direction, but there are other ways in which you can be a faithful Christian without having to dive into politics, per se, like of the political machine. As a citizen, you have certain obligations, right? Like you hear something wrong, you write to your MP that's or your MPP or your local counselor. Those are not like, hey, let's go head down to young and Dundas or, you know, to the town hall and, and no, no more Dundas. Dundas is going away. (laughs) Right. That's right. Dundas (laughs) is going away, but there are other ways of being active in the community, right? Like I'm thinking about some of the, the new economic changes happening in Markham, Richmond Hill and Vaughan. And what does it look like for the church to throw their weight behind the affordable housing strategy or to say, well, actually, you know, if we build our housing a certain way, the next generation won't have a chance in the city. Or to say, actually, our social services don't provide for the poor or for our domestic violence survivors at this point. So what can the church do about it, right? It's not, it's not even necessarily about uh, the sort of like, we're going to march with signs, though that certainly is a faithful response. But there are other ways of protesting or showing people what the kingdom of God looks like without having to be, quote unquote, an activist. And I wonder if like, you know, what Stina, you're saying too, like you're, you're describing the different social locations that people embody. And it's like, it's, it's actually important and meaningful to actually engage and address and be present in those places. And I don't know, like maybe one of the things like, you know, like I think shoot your questions and the people that are asking that is a really honest question. Like, where do we, where do we begin? How do we start? You know, like, do we go, you know, on a march? But I also kind of question like, well, who takes the place of the pulpit and the teaching and the formation of the group? And maybe maybe some of those spaces can can also kind of begin to disrupt and stir into the social imaginations of our groups, um, you know, inviting people to kind of look at and see and hear. And maybe that's a place to start, too. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Bern, because my church right now is mostly Asian, different sorts, not just Chinese. But we're hoping to be an intercultural church. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is we've got some folks who are minorities and we're actively asking them to participate because we want the church to know who whose voices we want to to be heard, not just, you know, uh, East Asian voices. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is we're starting to read our scriptures in different languages. So in a given week, we'll have Cantonese and English and French. Sometimes we'll pull out the good old Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Already that disrupts because what does it look like to sit through a reading of scripture where you're watching other people listen to their heart language while being foreign to it yourself? Like that's already a disruptive moment that brings people together that says the the body of Christ is, is bigger than just one culture and one language. Not to pull out Revelation, but, you know, 
No, I, I think those things are key. And like, Zina, you're mentioning a bit about, you know, not just diving into a governmental politics or, or, or civic politics, but how is the church living out as a politic and, and showing that, that witness in that way. And I think some of those things you both are mentioning are, are so key. But I don't know. I always have to like go back to in my context. It's like sometimes you, you, you're stuck kind of spinning the wheels of that liturgy. You know, you just, you're, you're just doing that. But like you're saying, is there a disruption? Is there a prophetic thing happening? There is a bigger social imagination for what the Holy Spirit is calling us to engage and inviting us into. And if not, you just keep playing church. Okay. That's a terrible way to say it, but you keep just spinning that wheel and not to say some of that stuff isn't good tradition for its time, but is there more than just that? And actually all the things you guys mentioned too, I think in in just some some new practices is ways that we can practice how to uh, be more aware, not just our own culture, our own ethnicity, but to see how the church can be looking beyond just itself and its own tradition, how it's always done things, but engaging in other ways, and it might need that disruption. So I don't know. Thank, thanks for, for sharing some of that, because I think those things are necessary. I wonder if this very moment, as we are you know, kind of slowly getting out of the pandemic, that this pandemic is actually a prophetic moment, that it is a prophetic moment that actually not only challenges the church, but challenge our culture as a whole. We are disrupted. But then the question is, like, where do we go from here? You know, uh, and do we ride through the disruption and, you know, enter into a new imagination? Or, or are we kind of still clinging on? And I think like, that's been the question that I've wrestled a lot with, you know, with other people, and even within our own church, like, like, are we still hanging on to kind of the bastions of the past? Or do we actually realize that maybe through this whole time and everything that's being like exposed and amplified, like requires us to change? I would say we're clinging on, but <laughs> you know me, I'm the pessimist, right? But I have hope, I have hope, but I'm, I'm quite pessimistic on some, some things that I've heard, but I... But at least from hearing from some of you guys, I, I have hope. I have hope. But maybe it's partially how we ground ourselves in reality, but also are hopeful for what can be, as especially as things have been revealed. And you know, I, I love how Bernard was just saying about how it is a prophetic moment. It, you know, it it does shake us up and does point us to new opportunities and areas and ways of engagement. And so perhaps whether it's engaging with others in a particular way or, or perhaps engaging in particular topics, that could be some way in which does push us ahead into, you know, what the, what the future of missional engagement can look like. And especially when we talk about a topic like this, you know, how can we see more and more of these opportunities in which to be able to step out in this way. So I'm sure we could talk endlessly on this one, the first response that we're talking about. But, you know, to kind of jump ahead a little bit, because there were a lot of different perspectives. One of the people who left a comment was, in regards to how the church's place helping to wrestle through cultural diversity, what could that look like? And especially when it regards to other religions and interfaith conversations as well, because Asian religion is part of a big part of forming the Asian culture. And so how can perhaps the church find its role in 
terms of having some of those conversations, how perhaps some of that will involve the church's role in connecting with others in our neighborhoods and in our neighbors and considering how it can connect with people from different faiths as well. I was going to say one of the best tools that I found in terms of like figuring out intercultural dynamics and leadership and even just how you are on the intercultural spectrum is the intercultural development inventory, the IDI. Yeah. Shout out to Tim Tang at the Tim Center. If you want to go check out the IDI, but you know what I really like about the IDI is this, it's a spectrum, right? Like you can land anywhere on the spectrum Wherever you land, it's not wrong. It's just where you are. And it really tells you like how you can get along better with people who are different from you. And even like where you are right now, even if you don't think you are there. I've done this twice. The first time I was, I was like, no way. I'm not, there's no way I'm this. But at the at the time I was, well, I was recovering from a serious bout of institutional racism. Actually, looking back, it didn't surprise me that I was. I wasn't quite a polarized, but I was definitely not at acceptance. But, you know, and you can change. Like you do shift on the spectrum. I've shifted from that place since. The other thing that I wanted to say is, as we're having this conversation, I don't have very much to say about interreligious dialogue, if only because that's not something that particularly interests me per se. Like, anyways, beyond that, I've got a good friend who wrote her MDiv thesis on Thomas Burton's understanding of Zen Buddhism and Christianity, which is actually quite interesting. But among other books that she asked me to lend her was Kosuke Koyama's Water Buffalo Theology. Koyama is a Japanese theologian who ended up in Thailand as a missionary. And in Water Buffalo Theology, he says something along the lines of like, Christianity and Buddhism does not dialogue. Christians and Buddhists do. And it's something about like being able to see the image of God in other people. And from there, that's, that's your starting place. And she was pulling it off a shelf. He's got it right there. She was holding it up. No, I like that. I like that. I think that's a good place to start. I got to actually finish reading it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Actually, you know, Xenia, like, I just want to follow up very, very quickly. It's just that, like, you know, when you heard that phrased in that way, what was your first impression when you were hearing that, oh, you know, not about Christianity and Buddhism, but rather Christians and Buddhists? So what was your kind of first initial thought when you heard that? Yeah, I I think my time with the IDI makes me think, like, in order to appreciate your own culture, and in this case, religion, you have to know yourself in order to know others. And so I have a hard time with say, with people who say like all roads lead to, you know, whatever, because I, I think that flattens diversity. And I think it doesn't do enough justice to the various cultures and religions that we're actually talking about. And so in order for me to actually even be like, if I'm talking to a Muslim friend, my gut instinct is to say like, oh, look, you know, like Islam and Christianity are the same. They're not. Like, I don't know in what world, like, that would be okay. But, you know, like, I think, well, what does it mean for my friend's faith to inform her life? In what ways has this shaped her to be the person that she is? And then my question is, what is the Holy Spirit doing in her life? Amen. You know? And from there, the conversation goes. Not, it's not an ulterior motive. It's just, how do I see my friend as the child of God that she is? Hmm. You know, just to follow up on that. 
you know, I really like that, you know, like instead of looking at it from the, the religions talking instead of like more focusing on the, the people talking and it can't help, but that, that posture is more than just interfaith really. It's actually just people. Like even when we were talked just about like, you know, like, are we aware of our, you know, adjacent white privileges and, and, and then everything that we talk about relationship. And, and I wonder if that, that is just the posture that we need to hold, that we are talking to people as people. And, you know, as Christians, if we, if we truly believe that people are made in the image of God uh, in all its beauties and flaw, well, not in God's flaw, but like, you know, our human brokenness, like, what does that look like to actually enter into, you know, this, this embodied place together and to see, you know, God's beauty in that too. And I don't know, like it reminded me of like something that Eugene Cho was talking about how in Seattle, they had this whole dinner thing, which is like, they match up with random people and like, totally polarizing perspectives and they actually have a meal together and that totally disrupts their perspective of the other you know i was really moved by that and really challenged because that that can be the catalyst for change you know and i and and i think that actually disrupts some of our like previous preconceived notions of what we understood of the other but but isn't like like the the like even that the difficulties like we're talking about like religion dialoguing with religion. It's like there's what ends up happening in some of these, you know, and it comes even back to racism and discrimination in some of those things, but it's ideologies versus ideologies versus like you're saying, bringing it more to the personhood and, and at least having conversations that stem from there before you just get into, okay, now let's talk the high level, all of your belief system versus this belief system and all these things. But like it's almost like your best kind of evangelism or at worst proselytizing people, <laughs> you know, like your, your best form of evangelism is just, you know, who you are who or, you know, who God is or whatever your religious kind of things is going to represent. So I think that's the, what's hard about that is that I think there is certain sects in Christianity that want to just get the cognitive rational thing and make that the highest priority. And if, if you don't have that in place, then everything else you're going to talk about is, is not worth talking about and not worth investing. And that's why they get, they talk about, you know, CRT, they talk about, you know, uh, these other things as, so that's not exactly the Bible or the way that we are, our ideology understands things. And I find that that kind of is where all the, you know, the butting heads ends up happening because they're like, maybe Bernard, like you're saying the posture is not there and we just want to get right to either the cognitive or the that that side of it we were part of the craze of apologetics right like everything is about defending the faith (laughs) and it's like you know let's uh let's kind of package this so that's like you know everything will have an answer for but it's like like is that is that really an engagement in a dialogue is that something that like you know like is that the starting point that's always my question is if nobody's asking those questions, why are you giving that answer to people? That's like a gut punch question. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, we're moving on and you know, we're going to kind of just briefly touch base on a, a few of these kind of topics since kind of, uh, you know, just earlier there was a brief mention about 
CRT, critical race theory, and whether it has you know relevance today, and how can it add particularly to this particular conversation and and the solution. And so you know one of the comments that we did receive was that you know is CRT something that is still worth really looking into and and applying today, especially in regards to how it is a legal framework and how it has connected to, you know, some of the things that in, in the past in Canada, particularly things like the head tax, uh, the restriction of voting rights. However, you know, was that something that was like, was CRT something that was more needed for the past and now is not as needed, um, especially because we've seen Asians in particular hold some of the highest positions in Canada, like governor general, lieutenant governors, and such like that. And if there was a legal side, or you know, if if it was something that was systemic on on that legal side, how could that have happened? That you know, we had like a Chinese governor general. Isn't that a sign and evidence that you know that we have resolved that, or we have kind of moved past that? No, no, it's just it's just so fascinating to hear hear that comment that it was almost like, well, because you've you've had a you know a black governor general or, or you've had a, a female prime minister. This oh, all the issues are gone. <laughs> you know, it's almost like we've moved on. We're we're like everything's fine now. But it's just interesting to have like almost think the advancement has already happened. So there's no other issue. It's almost like not really. There's you don't have to really talk about these other issues and. I don't know. And just bring it back to CRT, uh, critical race theory. It's just, it's interesting that people are like, yeah, we don't, we want to want, want CRT to be, you know, in, in the church and influencing people this way, because it's, it's not, you know, it's not uh, in scripture. It's not part of the gospel. It's not this. So, you know, th- th- you'll have statements like that, but then it almost shows that you don't really understand what's the purpose of looking at, you know, a kind of theoretical, you know, academic framework to to try to explain what's going on with racism, and this is CRT is more for American history, American uh, uh, history of racism and what's going on there. But I find that just fascinating that people they're jumping to those things really fast and using that as oh, like another ideological tool. Like, well, we can't be about this because Christians shouldn't be about this. They have to be about what's really you know in the Bible. And, and that's it. You have to use even those Bible terms and then we'll really be following Jesus. You know, as you're saying that, Shu, like I'm just even wondering how many of our folks have an arts and social sciences education. Like that is definitely at play here. If they're not used to reading philosophies and as in philosophy is the thing that tries to explain the, the water we're swimming in, then they're not going to understand where this is coming from. And I would argue it just means that if we're not embedded in sort of the social imaginary of the larger culture, we're also not aware of what we're speaking to or against. So I think in in essence, this critique has some merit. I mean, I okay, also the governor general is largely symbolic. That was the critique that was leveled against our latest governor general, right? Like she's she's Inuit. And then everyone's like, well, yeah, but it's a symbolic position. Will she be able to affect change? And I, I think by virtue of who she is, she'll be able to do something. But I also think like if the structures have been built a certain way, I don't know if you've ever been at a church meeting 
and you think and people will say to you well it's always been done this way and you're like but it's only been done for two years in my in my case you know my church has said this once and we're like wait but we've only been alive for a year you know like once people get fixed in structures things don't shift the way they are and so if the structure was built a certain way to accommodate certain people and now we're realizing that the structure in accommodating certain people left out other people that's all what CRT is saying like some other people were left out. This current system that was kind of got fixed in place isn't really open to change because it's human nature for us to become fixed. Now, the question is, are, are we built for systems or are systems built for us, right? And that's a powers and principalities question. So we think, okay, well, if God created the powers and the powers are oppressing us, well, then there's there's something wrong here. and. There's a number of reformed theologians who will say, well, then it's our job to actually go about, and even other, uh, well, there's just a bunch of theologians, not just reformed, who start going into the whole thing of saying, well, what does it look like to redeem the powers? And that's, and that's, you know, when we're talking about biblical worldview, whatever that means, that's one way of looking at how CRT illuminates in what way can the Christian participate actively in redeeming the powers and principalities of saying, you know, the world is not right. And how is God bringing about new creation? How do we participate in God's mission to redeem and restore this world? That That's all that this is. And for sure, like there's lots about critical race theory that probably doesn't super align with what we believe, but it's a common parlance, you know, like Paul's favorite thing to do is to speak people's parlance so they might get to know Jesus. Is that something that we could jive with? You know, like, can we learn this, not in the ways that we want to be anti this, but in the ways of, well, other people are speaking this language. How do we speak this? And how do we bring Jesus into discernment, into speaking back to the culture? I wonder if there's like an uncomfortability because it actually reveals something within our own systems that like we're just not comfortable in changing. And it's kind of like that introspection process is kind of very difficult. And it's like, well, I don't want to realize that I'm actually part of the problem. And then kind of what senior you were saying, like, you know, we've always done it this way, you know, and I don't want to change. But then, you know, things like this come into not only our culture and it's disrupting our culture, but it's actually seeping into the church and it's disrupting our church culture. And it's kind of like, I don't want it to be disrupted. And, and I don't know, like maybe for some people, like, this is good. This is right. But then it's like, maybe it's not. And it's just hard to handle. I'm not saying that like, that should be the way I'm just saying like, that that's kind of where I'm, I'm pushing, like, you know, like whether we want to take this theory, like as it is or not, like there are biblical principles that can be framed from some of these theories uh, and they have, they can be used as the same kind of critique back into our own systems and cultures and powers and principalities. And, and I think like, you know, like everything that we've talked about today, you know, like it is about kind of entering into the uncomfort and the discomfort of change. It's just whether or not we are willing to kind of kind of massage it and work through it, you know? Well, I think this would be a great segue into our next point when, because we're talking about conversation, we're talking about dialogue and in a dialogue, there are two parties or more than one party. Like how can both sides be part of moving forward and how can we both, how can both sides be you know, acknowledging certain things that have played into perhaps where we find ourselves today. And, you know, some of the comments that we also had received back were, 
you know, yes, there has been anti-Asian violence and for sure that's, you know, violence inflicted upon Asians. Like that there has been fear, there has been a specific perspective, racially profiling or, you know, making assumptions in that way. However, if the conversation is to be had with both sides and to be perhaps making more aware of certain things that have led up to things. And so I think one of the comments that we did receive was in regards to, okay, you know, have there been specific things that, you know, that have happened in the past that then are blanket statement over all Asians and then therefore perpetuated the fear? You know, whether it's been actions by governments, you know, they've contributed to the antagonism. They've created the rationale for that fear. And, and this was a very interesting kind of comment that someone had made in regards to Bernard's assertion about Asian people being hospitable. Are they only hospitable toward their own people and not so much like people outside of, you know, their Asian circle or, you know, of their own ethnicity? And if that's indicative of like ethnocentric kind of attitudes, then does that also kind of play into everything that has led up to the sentiments for today. The geopolitical situations are very interesting. In particular, in the Cold War, which wasn't really all that long ago, when the Berlin Wall came down, I, I wasn't alive yet, but I think you guys were. And so the, the imaginary of the, the big, bad, red communists played a huge role in American politics. And still continues today with some of the geopolitical sort of antagonism between the United States and Russia. But we don't think of Russian people the same way. Does that make sense? When Russian people come over to Canada, we don't automatically, I, this might have been true like three decades ago, four decades ago. It might still be true today, but it's not often that my Russian friends tell me that they've been accused of being spies. So there, there's something to that. I also think like this narrative of assimilation is... There's a sense in in that question of like you know is it is it Chinese people's fault or Asian people's fault that we're so ethnocentric and I I think that assimilation first of all is an American narrative Canadians have never really asked for assimilation where you know here's the here's the common phrase that's been thrown out all the time we're a mosaic not a melting pot each ethnic group that has moved here has largely kept their own sort of ethnic heritage that's why we have places like little italy like chinatown like little portugal koreatown one and two and then the you know the germans and the and the finnish people and the you know like there's still if you trace sort of even if you look at churches and their immigration waves you look at ethnic churches and the ways of ethnicities like ethnocentrism or however that person wants to define it isn't particular to the Chinese narrative of immigration because Canada has made space for difference. Now we're really bad at tolerance, right? Like we have no idea what that means. Tolerance for a lot of Canadians means flattening it to one status quo. But at our best, Canadians have always welcomed the other. And at our worst, we, you know, we've talked about that quite a bit. But it's also made room for, for a certain demographics to stay together and retain their social cohesion. And in, in some respects, that's what the churches have operated as, like these, these institutions that have allowed for, for flourishing of certain ethnic groups within one or two or three generations, and then they dissipate. Or not even fully, but, you know, they, there's some level of different integration that happens. 
So when I'm listening to this thing about ethnocentrism and like superiority, for sure Chinese people have like superiority complexes all over the place. Like I don't, I don't think I have to go into it to to even have I don't have to elaborate on what that looks like. Like many groups do. <laughs> exactly. And then to Burns' point about hospitality, yeah, okay, I buy the thing where like Chinese people are only hospitable to their own people. But that doesn't preclude us as Chinese Christians to extend that hospitality beyond our own cultural group. We have a value for hospitality. It might just be oriented towards our own people, but it doesn't mean that it has to stop there. The other thing, too, is we have to be careful of the narratives that we're being given. You know, for post 9-11, it was let's let's be afraid of the Middle East in this current day and age. Let's be afraid of China. Okay, sure. But again, like people are not necessarily like the state. It comes back down to relationships. So I hear what you're saying, Xenia. I'm wondering in particular, like, what does it mean for some of that ideology or that type of posture and that type of attitude can perhaps transform and influence the wider culture? Because I agree with pretty much everything you said. However, I also perhaps have seen whether it's a narrative that has been pushed on us through media or there has been a collective herd ideology that has just been accepted or has just become the dominant one. And so it still floats out there. And perhaps certain things are either accepted wholesale or perhaps they have just been inherited. And even though I agree with you that like, for sure, things aren't not precluded from like reaching out to a different culture or different ethnicity, but why doesn't it happen? Why is it for some people it breaks a certain mold or, and I think I'm kind of asking those questions to myself is that like, there's nothing per se preventing us from doing it, but then why don't we do it? And why, like, why in particular do certain things just kind of continue to float around? And, I, and perhaps because it isn't done, then like as the media continues to, to shell out <laughs> this particular narrative, then it's like, okay, that's the ongoing narrative that's pushed on us. And it's not counteracted by perhaps actively loving your neighbor or actively connecting with, with others, whether it's inherited by you know, your parents or grandparents or perhaps your own cultural community. You brought up the idea about Asian churches if they stick together and there's kind of this homogeneous thought that just perpetuates and then, you know, it never kind of breaks out of that, then how can we kind of even take a step forward? And I, I say this because I've, you know, I've seen the angst of those in Asian churches looking up to their leadership and asking those questions and wondering why those questions aren't being answered or addressed. And then it's doubly wounding to see then that certain things are addressed, but those things might not be the priorities of their generation or, you know, what they've been influenced by. And so like, I'm kind of asking myself all these thoughts and, and I agree with you in terms of the concept, in terms of the posture and attitude, but I'm just wondering why is it so hard to, to root itself in the practical and, and to just be living it out? If some of it, just like as you're mentioning, it stems back to what's modeled and what what is being shown at the end of the day. Like 
you'll have some groups of people because of the way they're formed, they're not going to be hospitable or they're just going to be hospitable to people they like, right? Like it's easy to love your own family, but who, who cares about that? If you can't, like, if we're following Christ, you're, how do you love those that are not? And unless you have leadership that models that and it's inherent within your community and structure, like you will love the other and you will, that's part of the like, kind of, as Xenia was just talking about it, just, just, you know, in the past, in the beginning was just, are, are we doing that? Is the leadership modeling that? And is it just, oh no, the leadership is just modeling, love your small group, love your, your fellowship that you started and love the, the people in here only, or like, they won't say that, but it's almost like, just make sure that ministry keeps going, you know, but is there a posture that that's being shown? that that's different. But I think like, it also kind of goes to, well, what stories are we spotlighting? Right. Like even if the leaders are doing it, like if that's not the story that you focus on and that's not the story that is being revealed, like, you know, John, you kind of talked a little bit about media, what stories are being portrayed, right? Like, you know, today we were like on Facebook, somebody wrote about like, Oh, you know, like the, usually, you know, those small faithful churches, like they don't get the spotlight, but they're doing some incredibly faithful work. But it's like, we do need to be aware of what are the cultural narratives that form even our own Christian cultural narratives, right? And, and then even like, you know, when we think about like, I was just actually, you know, this is a side thought, and Senior was talking about like, you know, there, there are like new ways of kind of breaking these kind of structures and mode. Right. And I think like it's interesting because like we find it very hard like to kind of break out of our culture, but yet we participate in the breaking of culture every day when we go out there and we experience food that is of fusion culture. Right. That's breaking the mold. That's not only celebrating one culture, it's actually celebrating two. Two that was infused together to form something different. Actually, three culture. This is then becomes a new culture itself. And I, I feel like but that's not necessarily the way that we tell the story, right? Because because we don't we don't think about it that way. But it can be seen that way. It can be celebrated that way. So I think like there's also like the posture of like how we tell story as well. I'm going to say the controversial thing here. Sometimes ministries just have to die because sometimes things have to die mm. in order for new life to happen. So like if your church. You know, the church is where the mission of God lives itself out, right? Like if the church isn't living out the mission of God, living out the redemptive, restorative purposes of Jesus, like maybe it's time to reformat. Maybe it's time to rethink. Maybe it's time to reimagine. But, you know, in a good life cycle of a forest, fire needs to clear the brush in order for for the forest to be healthy. Jesus talks about it in John, right? Like we got to be pruned sometimes. And maybe this is just pruning, lest we get thrown into the fire. I'm sorry, I'm mixing all my metaphors now. But and we might have to be too. We'd be humbly accept that. Yeah, like I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. But it's just, I think we just hold on to those things for so long, or we, John, you know, you're gonna shoot me for this. Like you, you always try to look for the best into, you know, for for the a group or for how things have been done for so long, but that discernment of like, does this need to die? Man, that's a hard place to, to be in. But part of the hardship of that question is like, are we building our empire? Or are we building the kingdom? Sure. 
right? If it's our empire, of course it's hard to break down. This is this is mine. But if we shift our perspective, legacy, right. legacy that that you, <laughs> and yeah. I think that's the harder part about yes, the what this person may be talking about about Asian culture. We have such strong legacy that that we have to live for. Actually, that's the term I hear a lot in Chinese church. <laughs> <laughs> well and it's it's the like who is pastoring your church like whose church is it is it yours or is it jesus's if it's yours by all means build a legacy but don't call it church <laughs> oh man i want to respond a little bit to that and so i think this is where it's like at least in terms of trying to figure it out because we talk about the issues of diversity and we talk about the issues of church and you know, yes, it is ultimately Jesus's church. At the same time, like the people embody, you know, who Christ is, right? They embody the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and as such, like what part then does it play that like, okay, that all these things come back together and we have to consider that, okay, if, you know, it's, it, it is a, a specific cultural expression. It's particularly connected to the specific, for lack of a better word, generation? And can what is modeled be what dies and not necessarily the church or the people? <laughs> so that resurrection can happen amongst the people because Christ is at work transforming there. And that's, this is why I think sometimes, like, at least I wrestle with it because like, is there a way that God can breathe new life into something? And I don't know if everyone agrees and maybe most people don't agree, <laughs> but literally the the postures and the attitudes and perhaps the priorities from before can die and without sacrificing the people. Because ultimately, like, it is Christ in the people. Like, these are the people in Christ that is the church. And so how does that all come together? So, you know, we're, we're drafting our church covenant right now and putting together sort of our values. And one of our values is actually to put a kill switch into our covenant. And it means, you know, when we get to the point where our church is no longer about the mission of God, when our church is about something other than Jesus, whatever it is, whatever is not faithful in the moment, then we'll we'll activate the kill switch and we'll start discerning what it looks like to send our people out and to birth new things. So I, I think you're right. Like, we don't want to kill people. That's not the point. And we don't want people to die either. Like, I, I hear a lot of second generation go, oh, I just can't wait for the first generation to die. Like, I think that's dishonorable. I think it's disrespectful. I think that we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But the bathwater must be thrown out. Does that make sense? Because the bathwater is getting stinky. When I was at a Chinese church, right? Like, I, I attended the Cantonese congregation, not the English. Which is why nobody ever saw me, because... You know, the Chinese congregation is always a little bit larger than the English. But I I was there because there was so much that I could learn from my elders that I was just not receiving from my peers for that season. And I've often said this, like the ways in which they've translated certain books makes cultural sense to them. Like they have actually contextualized some of their teachings. The problem is when they hand my generation a book that was written for boomers, Californian, white, like, I'm like, hello, (laughs) I'm a millennial. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Can you apply your contextualization to, 
to your next generation? Do you understand that the gospel needs to be heard in a different way for the next generation or even for for themselves? Because maybe some of it has gone a little stale, right? Because this process of reevaluation and submission to the spirit of God and saying like, hey, God, like, is this thing still honoring you? And it takes a lot of humility, takes a lot of courage to say I was wrong. I tell my church this all the time, like, hey, if you see me do something terrible or you think it's terrible or you disagree with me, by all means, please come tell me. And I've publicly apologized a couple of times because I think what our churches need most is leaders who are willing to, to be humble and to listen. And that's what it means to model like this canonic self-giving love of Jesus. It's not about legacy, right? Because it's, it's not about what we can do, but how much the, our legacy really should be how much God is doing and not what God has done, but what God continues to do. And I think by far, you know, what you were saying, Zinia, like one of the hardest things about church is in the what are we supposed to do, like in like how are we supposed to do it? I think I think the hardest part for church is actually learning to listen to God together. Because a lot of times we either individualize it or like we just don't know how to listen to God. It becomes kind of like, you know, like we actually portrayed what we think God is saying versus actually learning submissively to invite, you know, the spirit of God to, to guide us, to lead us, to form in us. It, and it's not an easy practice and it takes such humility and, and just longevity of learning and a mutuality in community. Be all I can think is that it, it, and like a lot of, a lot of people in my head is like, no one's got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just what I think. Like I hear it in my head. Not that I believe that. I totally agree with with everything you're saying. I just I just hear that so much. And that's also <laughs> part of our North American busy culture, right? Yeah. Like we are we are a machine. We're one of the cogs of the machine, and we we got to keep pulling. But then it's like, at what point don't you realize that our machine is not actually working to do anything? And only then can we say like, well, maybe we actually got to rewire the machine. So that it actually can do what it's supposed to do. I think that's what's like you're saying about the pandemic right now. That's what's unraveling everything. Cause now it's the times that we're finally starting to see, or at least things that were under that surface is bubbling up and we're, we're now a sort of crossroads. Can, can it go in that direction or not? But John, by the way, one thing I, w- I was thinking when you were saying, when you're asking that question, like, can the bad culture or the bad kind of tradition die and, and the people still come together. I was just thinking about that question as a parent. Like I, I was thinking about it. If my kid isn't part of the same church, local church family that I'll be a part of, the, you know, that as they grow up, how will I take it and how, how will I deal with it? I'm, I'm already preparing myself <laughs> kind of thing that, you know, God may lead them elsewhere or, or they'll have to go through that journey themselves that I, I do my best to prepare and disciple them what I can. But I find sometimes, same with what Xenia says, not that I want people to die or their faith to die or be messed up by what's happened in, in our current church issues and stuff like that. But like I've had to learn it the hard way. I think Xenia knows <laughs> some, some of the people that 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 are at her church right now. You know, I've I've had some struggles like just how to like 
similarly, I didn't want them to, to leave um, my, my church context, but I also understand God's working in them in, in a specific way. And it's, if they need to move forward and, and journey and, and follow where the spirit's guiding on that way, like I, I gladly send them off and, and pray that, you know, they'd be faithful where they're at. So I don't know. I just think about that as a parent and I would hope that, you know, I think about the prodigal son story that as that younger son, you know, leaves the fa- basically it's almost like calling, you know, like father taking the inheritance. It's almost like you're dead to me. It's time to move on. But then he comes back. Sometimes that happens too in the Chinese church. I was going to make a comment about who's the prodigal, the older generation or the younger generation? <laughs> the diplomatic answer would be we are all the prodigal. Exactly. Exactly. You know, for sure, for sure. Hey, thank you guys so much for joining us today on this conversation. There were just so many other questions questions about mental health, about Asian Canadian identity, about white supremacy, and so much that we could have also talked about. And we really appreciate all the things that you guys have sent. And, and we apologize, we couldn't have responded back to everybody and had a dialogue about the different areas. But hey, thank you guys so much for sending that in. We, we took time, we read through them, we talked about them offline. And you know, we're, we're going to continue to wrestle with these things. So don't be surprised if some of these things pop up in some future episodes. And we really appreciate your time for sticking with us throughout this whole episode. It's probably one of our longest episodes ever, and we could have gone on and on. But we'd love to continue to hear from you and continue to dialogue on these points. So reach out to us. Let us know what you think. What did you think about some of our responses? You could always connect with us through email. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach us by Facebook, Instagram, or by Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe and share this podcast to others. That helps us to get this conversation out there, to invite more people in, and to hear the different perspectives. We want to be continuing to grow and be continued to be stretched as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. And on behalf of Xenia, Bernard, Shu, and myself, we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.